In May of 2022, Guidepost Solutions released a report on their findings from their independent investigation of the Southern Baptist Convention's Executive Committee's handling of sexual abuse allegations from 2000 to 2021. The Southern Baptist Convention is a fellowship of 47,000 churches across the U.S. with over 14 million members. The 288-page report is horrific. These men willfully chose to look away and ignore the evil that was right in front of them. But this report only focused on how the executive committee handled sexual abuse allegations. What if there were other stories reported to individual SBC churches? Would those stories be heard and acknowledged? Or would the victims be ignored and mistreated in the same ghastly manner that was detailed out in the Guidepost Solutions Report? Today, we will not only discuss the Guidepost Solutions Report, but we will also explore the response to a sexual abuse allegation by a large SBC and Acts 29 Church in Flower Mountain, Texas. This particular story was featured in two New York Times articles in 2019, and is yet another tragic example that when the institution of church is placed over the truth, the least of these are ignored, marginalized, and re-traumatized instead of being welcomed, loved, and made whole. I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. So today we're going to talk about the SBC report that came out about a few weeks ago from Guidepost Solutions. Uh, we are not SBC. Well, John and I were not affiliated with an SBC church. Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't think we were. Uh, what we found in our kind of podcast is that a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are actually nine churches that are affiliated also with the SBC. So you can be affiliated with multiple organizations. So we want to talk about the Guidepost report, um, Guidepost Solutions report briefly. I want to talk through some of the things that really stuck out as reading it. We may dive into it a little bit deeper on a later episode, but overall the report was, I mean, just heartbreaking and depressing. But I also like the 318 report. Uh, this report really needs to be read by everyone and, and, and needs to be discussed at small dinner tables and in churches everywhere. One of the main reasons we want to talk about it is that this report deals directly with sex abuse and sex abuse allegations and essentially like cover-ups or just completely disregarding the victims of sex abuse and how it was covered up all the way to the very top of uh, the SPC as an organization. And we want to talk about a current case that's actually happening within another SBC church that's also an Acts 29 church, which we're going to name, which is the Village Church in Dallas. And the reason why we're naming that church is that you can find anything that you'd like about this case online. We're going to post two New York Times articles that came out a few years ago. 
uh, that talked specifically about uh, what happened and the allegations. So we want to just provide commentary uh, around those articles in the wake of this SBC report um, because we think it's relevant. And then at the same time, John and I mentioned that we are, uh, I think John has mentioned this online, we are open for SBC stories. It's really bad to say that, but we are uh, taking in SBC stories. Jana has said in the past that the SBC is the grandfather or dad and Acts 29 is the punk yeah. rock kid. Is that I, what you call? Yeah, I, I think I've called him the SBC. I call it, why is the SBC a him? It's for sure a him. Sorry, Yeah, Jay. yeah it's <laughs> gotta I've be. Said, <laughs> I've said that the SBC is like uh, our daddy. Yeah. Um, Sounds bad I, also, I feel like also it's like the older brother and we're like the punk rock younger brother. Like, okay. So I know. take, I take, um, I love punk rock music and I take offense to that. I think it's more like uh, the SBC is Michael W. Smith. We're going to do contemporary <laughs> Christian music. And <laughs> Acts 29 is like the newsboys or audio adrenaline. With the ripped oh, jeans. Yeah. And the Sorry for anybody being associated through music with yeah. either of these organizations, so, but it's true. So and it's I don't true. mean anything with those because I don't think either either of those bands we mentioned have anything to do with any of these organizations. But I as a punk rock fan, I do not think punk rock would be uh, Acts twenty nine at all. Yeah. So I want to start with the fact that I read this article or this report, it's really long. I'm going to read it again because I, I want to just mm-hmm. know a little, I just want to read it again. That's but your I, Enneagram 5-ness coming out. That's exactly it. I just want to know <laughs> You everything. need to really intake it, yep. My first takeaway, other than it being devastating, is that it seems like it's a limited scope. So while, mm-hmm. I mean, there are, there are horrible stories in this and findings in this report, I was I was even more concerned that how many untold stories are out there how many victims, I mean, how many victims are there that have been ignored or disregarded or thrown under the bus? Um, or lost their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's what the first thing that I was like, there's there's, there's so many more stories out mm-hmm. there. Uh, so I, I don't know if you're listening to this and, and you are an SBC victim and your story was not told. My first thought is my heart goes to you and I'm so sorry and your story matters, uh, you matter. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is we just had an episode that'll come out probably pretty soon with Chuck DeGroat. And one of the things that he said that's just staying with me is like, find a, find a safe trauma informed therapist to go talk to is step one. And, and also like if, if you're someone who's a victim, go to the police, like call the yes. police and see what can be done. I, I mean, I think that probably is step one report it to the police yeah to report it so anyways um okay so a couple takeaways here one definitely seems like the executive committee of the sbc which is in charge of the sbc committee which isn't in charge of the actual churches but like the sbc is like a convention or an organization yeah. and if you're an sbc expert email us we'd love to have you on the episode <laughs> i'm learning so much about committees lately yeah. there's so many committees right so this was like the national committee i guess they really did nothing with uh stories of sexual abuse or they went out mm-hmm. of their way to do nothing or ignore them or disregard them 
And I mean, there's probably a laundry list of reasons why uh, people could read it and you, you could go through. There's a bunch of different reasons why. The, what I took away from it was one, th- they were scared of being sued, which is insane to think that that is why you don't report the truth. And then mm-hmm. two, it just, and again, just reading through it, like there just didn't seem to be an emphasis on caring, care, like, caring or wanting to hear these stories at, at the very top level. And it does seem like that the narrative, while I think, you know, there's probably more to this, definitely seems like that at the top, they really controlled the narrative of who got these stories and mm-hmm. um, what they did with them. Uh, something I took away was this was only looking from like I think 2001 to 2021 or 22. So it was a it was a narrow window. I mean, the SBC has been around for forever, right? For yeah. hundreds of years. They said that one of the things to the report. It's very early in the report that basically they were doing their own self like collections of names of abusers. Uh, So they had a list of abusers and there was like no indication that this executive committee did anything with these abusers. And at the time, I think they, they said 10 years, they're collecting reports for 10 years and they had 703 names of abusers. And I mean, that alone is disgusting and horrific. But what's even more horrific and heartbreaking about that is that victims had been going and asking them to create some sort of a database so that these men could not go on to be in a position of authority in other churches. And they kept saying that they couldn't because these churches are autonomous. And the whole time they actually had it. Yeah. The autonomous thing was was strange too. Like they had no power because the churches are autonomous from the committee, right? Yeah. Because of that, like the committee didn't have any way to influence the churches or follow through with any of these complaints. That was something they fell back on a lot, which is weird because they do have the ability to disqualify churches from being an SBC church, which they do. If you mm-hmm. let women preach or you talk about homosexual uh, sexuality or LGBTQ in any way that is against what they believe, you're out of there. And yep. so they do have the ability to pull that lever, but they didn't with not over sex- this. Yeah. And that's what blew me away the most was there are a lot of names in this report. And I encourage everybody to read it. That's what blew me away is it's not like. It's not like it was like one person. I mean, there's multiple levels here of inaction and just poor management and and most importantly, just a very unchristlike behavior uh, with dealing with uh, abuse that mm-hmm. is just kind of shocking. And so I actually was really moved by some of the victim statements. And so I, I do want to read some of those or at least talk about it because I think some of this reminded me of the 318 report. Yeah, with what some of the victims said. Now, I, I would say the thirty-one-eight report uh, it didn't have anything to do with this type of uh, level of abuse by any means, but some of the things that the victims said I thought were were very similar. Yeah. So, guidepost solutions. One uh, one quote from the report: They said faith communities and institutions should be a place of safety and refuge. But oftentimes for survivors of sexual abuse, the church has been a negative turning point in their recovery and their faith journey. A setback that can create a turning away from the faith 
and a stunting of spiritual and emotional growth or spiritual growth and emotional growth. Oh man. I mean, mm-hmm. is there anything more discouraging when you read a statement like that, where a church has become unsafe and your story is not only not valued, but that you're almost re-victimized by sharing it? I mean, many of these people were re-victimized. Yeah. I think that is what there are people that are puppeteering at the top of the SBC right now, especially on Twitter. SBC Twitter is like its whole own weird space where you can actually see what these people actually believe straight out of their mouth in real time. And someone just was posting the other day, like, we don't need trauma-informed therapy. We All we need is the Bible. That's a paraphrase. I saw that. Yeah, I think to like these victims who... So we're going to ask these victims who were literally abused by this institution to go back into like this institution that abused them to find care. That is like the complete opposite of anything that I could think God would desire from the church to say, you have to come back to us. And also it completely negates the fact that we are crap at trauma. Like we are horrifically bad at trauma as a, like the big C church in America. Yeah. And there's a story, there's a story in here of, of one of the, I guess he was an SBC. He was part of the executive committee where there was an allegation Mm -hmm. of abuse against him, which was from this report was they found credible the story and they found him not believable. Yeah. Which I thought that was like, I was like, thank, thank you that you said that. Like you didn't believe him, but in the story, like, one of the solutions that the church proposed is the pastor brought in a, um, uh, I guess he was a counselor of the church and he brought him in and there was like some sort of like forced reconciliation that happened, mm-hmm. like where you had to forgive the abuser and, you know, we all have to pretend like it didn't happen. I just can't, as a believer, how far we've fallen where we think that that is okay as a, as a follower of Jesus, that we think that that behavior is acceptable in any way as a Christian, it not only does it break my heart, but it gives me so much distrust for what people behind a pulpit, what they have to say when it comes to things like this. Like, mm-hmm. I, we need to be on our knees just lamenting and saying, We have failed. We have failed the victims. We have failed God's church. We have failed the cross. I don't mm-hmm. care what the mission is, because I know that keeps coming up about the mission of the SBC, which I think is like to totally like evangelize the entire world. You are evangelizing the world, but what you're evangelizing them is you are showing them that abuse is tolerated and mm-hmm. that power is more important than people. Yeah. That's what you're evangelizing. And this report proves it. I mean, our ideal is they would, turn the reins over completely yes like a full entire burn it down power shift be great if they're like we're not even going to nominate i think they have their meeting coming up where they're going to nominate a new president Mm -hmm. i would just i would love for them to say we're not going to nominate one we're going to seek outside counsel from experienced people that have had faith-based people that have had experience with dealing with things like this to come and help us figure out how to move forward uh, because we can't move forward as this. My fear is they're going to nominate somebody 
who's going to come in with an agenda mm-hmm. and try to push this, uh, you know, push this under the rug. And that's the last thing that we need for not only these victims, but for the church as a whole. My encouragement to anybody in SBC, in an SBC church right now, if that happens, to me, that is worth leaving the church over 110%. You should not be tithing to this organization any longer because they have completely smacked God in the face. Yeah. So there's some powerful quotes in this um, this report. A couple that stuck out for me comes from one of the victims who shared their stories and their names in the report. She said that the lesson they taught said, you are a creature void of any value. You don't matter. And this is in the wake of her mm-hmm. sharing her story and essentially, you know, nothing happening with it. As she goes on to say, but for me, faith is neurologically networked with a nightmare. Sexual mm-hmm. trauma and faith are uh, seared together in my brain. It's not only physically, psychologically, and emotionally devastating, but is also spiritually annihilating. It is soul mm-hmm. murder. And um, I think all of that language is not only appropriate, uh, but that is, it is soul murder. Like, I, I believe 100% that's how the Lord looks at this, because you are murdering someone's soul when not only do you sexually abuse them, but then you try to cover it up or dismiss it using faith-based language or the church or an institution. It's uh, so intertwined with yeah. spiritual abuse. It's, it's all so it. wrapped up into the same gross ball. There's more here. I mean, there's stuff that, that, that stuck out about other people saying like when they interviewed some of the staff of the executive committee, mm-hmm. the staff came back and said that the leadership had a fear of legal ascending liability which drove their resistance to stepping in to help with sexual abuse issues. And that was what I was going to say, my takeaway. I think that sentence really summarizes what I thought of the executive committee, that overall they were afraid something was going to happen to them or, or, the, or the church mm-hmm. uh, as a whole, so we, we need to cover this up or, or move it on or, or ignore it. I personally don't understand how you make that connection is that's more important than just sharing the truth. (laughs) And there are some quotes in here that talk about people pressuring the executive committee to say, hey, like the truth is more important than the institution. And Jonna, for me, that is where I'm at. I think Mm -hmm. the truth and whatever God is doing with all of these uncovering of these horrible things and exposing them that I, I think the truth, we need more truth right now than we need these institutions. The church as a whole, not the American church, not the SBC, not the Acts 29s or whatever other church network, those don't matter. When I talk about the church, it's the body of believers who follow Jesus Christ and believe in Jesus Christ uh, and, yeah. and want to love God and love their neighbors. That's going to be fine. It's going to still be there. If their institutions matter more than the truth, then we should all have a problem with that. And we all need to demand some sort of accountability. Absolutely. I mean, I can't fathom. And that's why power and money are so dangerous. And God talks about that in the Bible, how dangerous it is. I would rather see the SBC completely bankrupted and have to shut their doors by lawsuits from these victims at this point coming and getting financial help to get the therapy and services they need to be made whole. Like this, that is 
God's hands and feet moving to me is them actually being restored. I wish it actually didn't have to happen through lawsuits. I wish that the SBC just said, here's our billions of dollars. Yeah. Go find help, be healed. Like that's restoration. That is repentance to me and turning away from. And I've, I've heard this said before, like, Hey, but what about all the other jobs? And there are a lot of jobs on the line in these churches and, and a lot of times that's used as like an excuse to be like, hey, we employ a lot of people. Other other jobs are dependent on this church or this ministry. And I agree with that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, those jobs are on the line or in jeopardy because people are choosing not to expose the, the truth. They're hiding the mm-hmm. truth. If the truth came out, I guarantee you that there would be a place to where ministries would start to be restored and be healthy and jobs would come. They would naturally come or be established because mm-hmm. under darkness, you just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, there's or more- get another job. I'm sorry. Yeah. That sounds horrible. But guess who had to get another job and you? still hasn't? I'm just working for you. free now. <laughs> working for free. But I mean, Me. that is true. People need to just get another job. If you can't be supported financially in ministry, that's okay. You can be bivocational. You can actually serve and minister to people in other jobs. This can't be our reasoning. Our our reasoning cannot be salaries for people. That cannot be the reason we cover up abuse. And I 100% agree. And, And I think my point that I would stress too is that your job is in jeopardy if this stuff is covered up. Mm-hmm. eventually it will go away because because eventually we're going to all just get to a point where we're going to say enough is enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to give to that church or that organization. That's why now more than ever, everything needs to come out uh, on the yes. table so that we can all deal with it. Not only is your job in jeopardy, your soul is in jeopardy. Oh, for sure. For sure. You are literally held by God to a way higher standard than the rest of us, if you are in a position of a spiritual authority in your church and you are not doing everything you can to expose this darkness and bring truth to light and make people whole and to love them well and to do what God has commanded you in the Bible. The bravery of these victims, some are anonymous, some use their names, regardless, anonymous or those that, that use their names. The bravery of these victims it's just so amazing. And mm-hmm. um, those are the heroes. Those are the ones that are really, they're providing a space for others who have had a, a story of abuse that they've been holding on to for, you know, it's, it could be a day or it could be years. They're giving them the space to say, share your story. If you're out there, I encourage, we encourage you to share your story. You know, first, of course, we talk to the police and then, and then find a trauma-informed therapist or someone who's familiar with abuse and you know, the therapy world, and then find a trusted friend uh, that you could potentially, when you feel safe, share your story with. And I would also say this, if you're wondering why we're platforming men that are still named in this report, you should be wondering that because some of these men are very much still platformed. One preached um, a weekend ago at a very large church. Uh, he's named in the report. Others have come online to basically excuse the behaviors. Some in the report refuse to cooperate. So what I would say is, if you are a believer of Jesus, I think it's important that you read this report. I personally believe that if you have any connections with these men 
in any way that you pursue accountability to where they're not in a place where they can influence or still be allowed to not admit what happened and have a platform. That's just Mm -hmm. my opinion. But I think that's very important that there's accountability uh, for all of these men that are mentioned in this Mm -hmm. report, because if not, they're going to continue to be out there controlling the narrative. And the narrative is very clear that Mm -hmm. there was abuse and cover up at the highest levels within the SBC. So. And before we move on, we we are going to segue. I do feel like it's worth saying that the SBC as a whole has very racist roots. We can't just breeze by that with a report like this. There have been countless victims that are people of color in the SBC that did not get a big report. They don't have a report. Yep. We don't have numbers and names. And their stories matter, too. And they've been brave in speaking out for years as well. And I I saw someone say, and I wish I could remember who it was. So if this is you, please reach out and let us know. I saw someone say, notice how as soon as this report came out, things started changing like building names and statues or whatever. I don't know exactly what all you people in the SBC have as far as monuments, but it seems like there's a lot of monuments going on. They started changing those names, but they didn't change them over their views on people of color. And so we do have to hold that tension here and note that and one day hopefully bring someone in that can speak to that, that is not white. (laughs) Um, And just hold that tension as well, that it isn't just this report. There's a slew of horrific, terrible things that have happened that have been covered up for decades. Yeah. And, and also like, um, we're going to dive more into the SPC, but if you if you belong to the SPC, if you're a pastor, if you're someone that's involved deeply and you'd like to talk, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to talk to anyone in, in the church world, uh, whether it be pastors or those in these executive positions. Reach out to us. We're about platforming victims and their voices. Mm-hmm. But we also want to figure out how to move forward where victims mm-hmm. have not only a voice, but have a safe place uh, to go back and worship mm-hmm. and feel whole again. Um, yeah. And as we dive into the SBC, we, you know, anybody out there with an SBC story or if you're still in an SBC church and you'd like to talk, please reach out to us and it would be great to dialogue. Yeah. And I, I would love to challenge anybody real quick. If you're a pastor and you want to come to us or a position of authority and you want to have a conversation, if you feel scared to talk about the truth, I encourage you to press into why you are scared. And what does that fear actually point to? Because none of us as believers should ever be scared of telling the truth. That should be something in us that we are championing. So if you're scared to tell the truth, if you're scared to be honest, press into the why, because the roots of that are not of God. Amen. All right. So let's pivot toward the uh, allegation that's at the Village Church pending. I guess it's pending litigation or it's in litigation. Mm-hmm. All right. So everything we're going to be talking about uh, is public knowledge. Yet we're going to post two articles from the New York Times. Both were dated back in 2019. There's other blogs you can find as well that have addressed this. Um, 
this issue or this topic mm-hmm. thoroughly or this incident thoroughly. You can actually also look up just straight up the court documents. Okay. So if you think it's just the media, if you think it's just the media, or if you think it's just us and you don't want to believe us, uh, you can go ahead and actually look up the exact documents that are in court. Yeah. So (laughs) it's not just the media. This is real. It's happening. And the reason that we brought this up is in this article, both these articles, the village is referred to as the Southern Baptist Church. The village is a Southern Baptist Church or an SBC church. Southern Baptist Convention. I'm sorry. Um, it is on their website, and it's and we think it's relevant to connect there. That hey, this is an SBC church too. So when we're talking about uh, all of these stories about untold stories of victims or other stories of victims that may have been shared in other avenues, this is definitely one of them uh, that would mm-hmm. fall under uh, the SBC. Yeah, and for me personally, this case has just become something that my heart is just so broken over and I just so desperately desired justice for this family. And when I saw the report come out and realized the scope of it did not include people like this victim in this case, I instantly wanted to use our platform if we could to shine light on this dark corner because this person's story deserves all the attention and all the outrage from us as well, because it is horrific. So with that, we're going to dig into a little bit of this case um, at the Village Church. So to start this case, we actually have to go all the way back to June of 2012, where an 11-year-old girl was allegedly sexually assaulted while attending a summer camp with the Village Church by the associate children's minister. Was the perpetrator, right? Or the alleged yeah, perpetrator? Yeah, he was the alleged yeah. perpetrator. Over the next six years, she kept it bottled inside. She struggled with a lot of really terrible, horrible ramifications of that incident. And in February of 2018, she ended up disclosing to her parents what had happened. At that moment, a few things happened. So we're going to call them the Doe's because in court documents, she goes by Jane Doe. In the New York Times article, they do actually go by their name, but uh, we're choosing out of respect for the victim's family to continue to call them the does currently in this space. So February 2018, Jane Doe discloses this abuse to her parents, and they immediately informed the church, and they made a police report the next day. And for the next three months, they have multiple meetings with elders, and at no point did any one of them inquire who the perpetrator was. According to court documents, it's unknown if they ever actually reported the assault to the authorities, which they're mandated to do. I've seen some discourse on Twitter between her um, attorneys and them kind of engaging people on Twitter about this case. Mitch Little is one of the attorneys, and he actually tweeted the other day, ask why none of the staff ever um, went to this alleged perpetrator and actually asked if he'd even done it. He said, it's it's just curious. So I want to throw that out there to our listeners too. Why would someone not ask? What would be gained from not actually wanting to know the name? And part of why we wanted to talk about the guidepost report 
is that rings very true to how SBC handled sexual um, assault and abuse claims. They, it was like the least amount of information possible going to the least amount of people possible. And we see that throughout this case. And again, we can put all these links in our show notes so you guys can actually read and see. This is all public knowledge. We're not making stuff up. We're not going by hearsay. This is all things that are documented. So in May of 2018, we have three months later, the Mm -hmm. Does tell the village church that the alleged perpetrator was on staff, who he was. The village actually placed him on a leave of absence, but didn't disclose the details to the congregation beyond that at that moment in May of 2018. And then June of 2018, the village church issued a statement that doesn't name the alleged perpetrator, but states that a staff member had been removed for alcohol-related issues. In September of 2018, so right now we're four months past the village church knowing the name of the alleged perpetrator, Matt Chandler informed the congregation that there had been an assault and told the congregation that there, and this is in quotes, were no persons of interest in this investigation that have access to children at the village church. We would not let someone who is under investigation for a crime like this be near any of our children at the village church. What, where was that quote from? From the September 2018 address to the congregation about the situation. Was that online? And it, that quote comes from the court document. Okay. I'm just going to read what the court document says about this. It wasn't until three months later, on September 16th, 2018, that the Village Church senior pastor, Matt Chandler, made the first public announcement regarding the child sexual abuse that had been reported by Jane Doe 1. Chandler's communication did not identify, right now we're going to redact this person's name, so we're just going to say the alleged perpetrator, was who was reported. In that statement, Chandler stated that the church wanted to support Jane Doe 1 in, quote-unquote, any way possible. To this day, Patterson, who's another um, village church pastor, and Chandler have never personally reached out to Jane Doe One or her family. Chandler also stated that there were, quote unquote, no persons of interest in this investigation that have access to the children at the village church. We would not let someone who is under investigation for a crime like this be near any of our children at TVC. Chandler knowingly failed to inform the congregation that this alleged perpetrator had worked with and had access to the children of the village church for 11 years. Chandler also knowingly failed to inform the body that the alleged perpetrator was allowed to resign while blaming the resignation on alcohol and receiving a severance package. To date, the village church has undertaken no independent efforts to ascertain whether the alleged perpetrator abused any other children under its care and supervision. This is from the court document. That was me reading a direct quote from public court documents that you can go see yourself. Yeah, there's there's so many horrible things there. But then, of course, the village could say, oh, we reached out to Jane Doe's. I mean, it's a court document, so they could say that they reached out to him. Um, and, and that would be their right to do that. But I think the most damning thing there is the fact that if there hasn't been any independent investigation about how deep this could go, or if there's other victims, like that's what scares me, right? Like that's Absolutely. what I tie back to like that SBC stuff. It's like, wouldn't you want it? Like, wouldn't we want all the truth to be out there? What if there are other victims, even if there aren't victims, wouldn't we want a, an investigation to know if there's something that we could do better 
to make sure mm-hmm. that nothing like this ever happens again. Again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the episode where one, truth should not be something we're scared of. For us to be God-honoring organizations, churches, bodies of believers together, we cannot be scared of the truth. We have to be willing to put it all out there, especially to protect kids, the least of these, kids. Yeah. Reading that document, like if if I went to that church, I would at least just want to be like, Hey, like, let's bring somebody in because we want to know the whole truth here about this. Um, Absolutely. For the safety of of everyone at the church, um, but also most importantly, for the victims. I mean, there was yeah. one victim we know of. If there's others, like, we, you want to know so that as a church, you can step in and help. Absolutely. So in November, um, the alleged perpetrator was actually indicted for sexual assault. He's arrested and indicted. That's what it says in the in the article as well. Yeah. So he got arrested in uh, January okay. of 2019. He's indicted in uh, November of 2018. January of 2019, the Village Church issued a statement on their website saying that the alleged perpetrator had been removed from staff. And this is quotes for other reasons, and we communicated those specific issues to our staff, as well as to members and volunteers in his ministry department at that time. When did he actually, the alleged perpetrator, when was he off staff? In June of 2018, he was he had been removed for alcohol-related issues. So on the, on the New York Times article, it says the decision is a result of the alcohol abuse problem, and it's heartbreaking for all of us. I'm sorry that I'm laughing, but that it's a ridiculous statement. I'm laughing because it's a ridiculous statement. Mr. Chandler said in an email to congregants on June 15th that the alleged perpetrator preference was for you to know the specific reason for his removal rather than receiving a vague and general update about it. I mean, which that would have been. Okay, so that would have been 2018, which was what, three, you know, four or five months after they notified the church, uh, the Jane Doe's notified the church. February is when they notified him. So here, all right, so here's my question we continue, right? Why would you just not say the truth there? Why would you not just say, mm-hmm. hey, we have an alleged uh, allegation of abuse and we're going to bring in a third party because mm-hmm. we want to understand how deep it is. We fired somebody, by the way, and this is why we fired him. We're going to let the investigation take over, but we want to let you know. Like, why wouldn't they want them to know there? They didn't fire him. They let him resign and gave him a well, severance package. I agree. I'm, and I, I mean, that in itself is horrendous. But yeah. I'm just saying, like, at that point, why would you not just be like, here's the whole thing right there? So to be completely open and f- whatever we want to say, fair. In this conversation, Matt Chandler has come forward and said a lot of things that you can look through on the internet for his response. It is not in the court documents. And you'll see his quotes in the New York Times article as well. And to his excuses or reasoning behind the ways in which they have communicated in the past thus far, a lot of it has to do with supposed advice from the investigators To me, it seems like potentially advice from lawyers. I don't know why they communicated things or didn't communicate things in the way that they did. What I can say is as a parent and just a human being, I am 
completely horrified by the village church, the village church's handling of this situation. Okay. So January uh, 2019, the alleged perpetrator is arrested. Again, they said it was for other reasons that he had been removed from staff. I'm putting in quotes. June of 2019 is when that first New York Times article drops. And that is going to be located in our show notes. I really recommend that you look at it. Chandler pops off sabbatical to dispute it. (laughs) First, let's take a second and just talk through a little bit of that first New York Times article. Jay, you read that, right? Yeah, I mean, I read it. Uh, I read both of them. Yeah. I mean, they're not good. Like either either one of them, you know, the New York Times is New York Times. And so they've got a pretty deep vetting process. And, and they're definitely trying to not only uncover the truth, but getting all sides of it. And the takeaway that I had was, the biggest takeaway that I had is that there were, seemed to be opportunities to where there could be some light to this situation, but it just kept getting murkier and murkier <laughs> with yeah. the church and their response. And again, I'm laughing not because this is something to laugh at, because I can't wrap my brain around why there couldn't be a solution here where the victim was acknowledged and made whole and the perpetrator was held accountable early on. I think that uh, there's a couple takeaways that I had from the article, one being that one quote that said, no one was looking out for our daughter's best interest, uh, best interest. You know, she mattered. Jesus says she mattered. Like there seemed to be like layers that the village mm-hmm. tried to throw at them of different people to try to get, I guess, some sort of resolution. But it, def- at least in the article, it never seemed like it never seemed like it was to really address the problem and answer the question. It just seemed like another layer. And maybe I'm reading into that too much, but it 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 seemed like almost like a bureaucracy. Yeah. And something I'd love to drop in the show notes, Jay, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. I think you would love it. It's um, Wade Mullen. He's the author of Something's Not Right, which yeah. is a book in our resources. But he has a, I think it's a dissertation he did on something called impression management. And he made the whole thing available as a PDF online to read through. And this whole case just screams like every bullet point of that yeah. <laughs> of his dissertation. It's just impression management and it's so sad. And it probably comes again, boils down to a lot of reasons that we'll never know publicly of the reasoning behind why they chose to do things the way they did. Here's a quote from the New York Times article where they, they talked with um what was the t- senior director at the church? Um when the Jane Doe's raised the possibility that the perpetrator could have been someone from the church, from the village. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said it was impossible. Uh, that was impossible uh, because leaders followed the church's moral code enshrined in the membership covenant. To me, like I read that and I'm like, like that's not an answer. It's not only not an answer, but it's just and, not wise. And as a person. Are you kidding? Yeah. Like as a person, like I would be like, Oh my gosh, like I want to know. I'm a leader of a church. I want to know if this has happened and and I want to dig more. I want to find out more about this. But I I tie back to like what they said in that SBC report. Again, this is not in the SBC report, but it has the reason the connection that I'm trying to make is that 
in the SPC report, one of the things that it mentioned was the trustees going to the executive council saying like, hey, we, and I'm paraphrasing, we don't care about the institution. We, the truth needs to be shared. And to me, like, that's how I feel about this. Like, I, as a believer, don't care about the institution as far as the mm -hmm. building. I, I care about the truth because the truth is what, the truth is really what the church is about and should be about. So I understand like with the village, they employ a lot of people. I'm pretty sure they just did like a multi-million dollar new buildings in, in Texas. So they've got, you know, they're growing, they've got re resources and all of that. But I would hope that the truth matters to them more than their buildings, than their institutions, than their legacy, whatever they want to put out there. Because I read these two articles and I'm like, I it's just a lot of positioning, and in my opinion, just not a good yeah. way. The other thing they talked about is that the village assured the family that they were consulting with experts uh, in the case. Uh, so a founder of like a, a like one of those um, safeguarding organizations, mm -hmm. and they were advertised as kind of like victim centric, but. The victims were like, hey, can we talk to this this organization you're dealing with uh, about this situation? Uh, the church said no. <laughs> they said because the church was the client of this organization, it would be a conflict yeah. of interest for her to speak with with this company. Now, I again, like, I, maybe that's correct, but it goes back to like that posturing and these layers. It's almost mm -hmm. like to me... It seems like if I'm in this situation, you don't know which way is up. Like you're you're digging, and then you you're told no, you know, go right. Like let's say you're trapped somewhere. That's probably a bad analogy. I'm trying to think of a better analogy, but it almost seems like you don't know which way is up constantly. Like mm -hmm. the family is almost having to search for the truth, and they're constantly being derailed um, and finding out the truth. That's the take I and got from the article. It. Yeah, I mean, here's something. There's this is another poll quote from the mother of Jane Doe. No one has ever apologized to her. Hey, we're so sorry we failed to protect you. That's what stuck with me this entire time. How heartbreaking is that? Like, if we could all just take a second and put ourselves in this family's shoes and to think you entrusted your entire family's spiritual well being to this church, to these pastors, you believed the best in them. You believed that they cared, that they were there for to shepherd and protect and teach you. And you're supposed to be looking to them as an example. And then they didn't even take the mo the time to just come and apologize yeah. when they failed. Like that's like the bare minimum. That quote right there infuriates me so much because the bare minimum, it seems, has not even happened for this family in this case. And it's heartbreaking. And to go off of what you were even just saying with how confusing it is, like it's like the 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 search for the truth and the search for justice is in all of the all of the victims that we've talked about today, but in particular in this case as well, all of that burden lands on the victim. And that is so Yeah infuriating like why is the church not who who is taking up the charge in this yeah 
It it said that that I thought I just read this too. I remember reading this. It said that the the organization that the village employed for safeguarding the actual organization. They said they were law. They're like I guess they're lawyers. Uh, which is which is mm-hmm. odd, you know. They they were like, "Hey, we never knew that family wanted to contact us." Again, I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. The, essentially, like their job was to prepare ministries, like not to like be counselors in any way, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. And so, what are they preparing them for? I don't know. Like, well, I think it was trying to say like, um, what was the specific advises so like churches? Yeah, like safeguarding, like advises churches. Uh, to remove an accused staff member from access to children during the pendency of a cr- criminal investigation to conduct an investigation to see other children are affected. Uh, sh- uh, they said that their focus was not to work with the church, was to work with the church, not with a victim, but that they would not represent a defendant in a child sex abuse case. Uh, my job is to prepare ministries. I'm a lawyer, not a counselor. Going on to say that there's been, I guess, they address legal risk for churches, but does not help promote greater transparency as part of its response to abuse. This was a quote from a survivor, I guess, that had worked with that organization before. That's like very troubling, though. Like, why would you ever even bring that organization in in the first place? I don't know. I think to me, like, again, it's just another it's just another like you could argue like, well, we need that or whatever. The village could even argue like, you know, we're using it for something else. Who knows? But mm-hmm. again, I just go back to like, it's this this other layer that you have that doesn't seem to really be trying to uncover the truth. It just seems to be a layer that the victim has to get through to find out, you know, what's going on. I would just think like, you know, all of this stuff uh, would just be opened up if if someone came in and said, here's something that happened, especially as horrendous as sexual abuse, that again, the church would be on its knees being like, this is horrible. We want to know the whole truth of it. If you under, if you, if you do that process, then you will find out the truth. You'll find out what actually happened. And there aren't New York times articles and lawsuits. There's there's kingdom healing and yeah, there's not more bodies behind the bus. Yeah. I just, I'm like everything about this case infuriates me for so many reasons, but everything that we even just talked about, like all of it seems like it's there just to protect the organization. Yeah. Like what is there to protect the people? How do we protect people from becoming victims and how do we protect victims? How do we say it matters to us when that you come forward and you share your story and it matters to us when we fail you, you matter. And not just because we say you matter, but because Jesus says you matter. So in that, that second article, which I think the second article, which is dated um, July 26, 2019, and actually embedded in the article is the lawsuit. So you can actually read it. I don't even think you need to... Mm-hmm. I don't even think you need to look at the court documents. It's there. But the lawyer for the Jane Doe's has a statement where, oh, yeah, it said the village has not yet demonstrated a good faith desire to resolve this. Um, We have provided ample opportunity, ample time for that. We have hit a brick wall. And at this point or at that point in time, we had to make the difficult but necessary decision to press forward with filing a lawsuit. And then the article said they reached out for the village and I guess the village's lawyers as well for comment, but of course nobody reached, they didn't comment. Um, The other thing that the second article talks about in the suit, that the suit states that the alleged perpetrator 
was able to access and abuse the plaintiff at the summer camp because Jane Doe's cabin, Jane Doe one was also the location for, uh, some of the adult meetings, both male and female adults. Yeah. So that's kind of the crux of this case, right? Is actually the church policy says that they should have never been in there. Yeah. So that was the other thing in the violation of the church's own policy about people, of the opposite sex and children's cabins, the suit says. It's just another layer. And like, I, I think about like, if I have a kid that goes to that church and I don't know about this, like, let's say I don't know I have these articles that are out there, mm-hmm. man, I would just want to know the truth. I would just want to go to the church and say like, hey, have we done an independent investigation? Because this is horrific for this poor victim. But also like, can we do an independent investigation here? Because we don't want more victims. And we also, we want to share the truth. We want the truth to come out. And I think another motivator behind me wanting so desperately for us to cover this case as an episode is I'm the online of the two of us, of me and Jay, I'm the one on Twitter that's like saying crazy stuff all the time that it's actually not crazy. I don't say crazy stuff. I say informed things boldly. A lot of times when the village church or Chandler comes up, the gut response is to protect the institution, to protect Matt and to say like, he's uh, like, he's faithful. He's a good shepherd. And And maybe that's true to a degree. You know, maybe he is a good guy. Maybe this is just a mistake or they did the best they could or whatever. Maybe all of that can exist at the same time as this garbage. Or maybe we have to question whether this garbage needs to inform how we interact with a public figure like Matt. Well, all right. So this is from, and again, this is two years ago. So the article goes, it goes on to say, uh, this is the second article, which is dated, I think it's July 26. So the village has stated repeatedly that the alleged perpetrator was moved for, was removed for alcohol abuse rather than mm-hmm. because of a criminal investigation into whether he had sexually abused a child. When church officials decided to remove him, Matt Chandler told congregants, Uh, We had not been informed that he was accused, which is odd. Uh, We had Mm -hmm. not been informed that he was the accused. So they removed him, which we know through court documents, I guess he resigned, but that he told congregants we we didn't know that he was accused, which is from the original article. Jane Doe One does name the person. She, She provides the name to the village. Well, yeah, and the court documents right here, they named the person... In May of 2018, they disclosed in February of 2018, and by May of 2018, the Village Church had the name of the alleged perpetrator. Okay, so here's where here's here's what I wanted to say. So, what John alluded to about Matt coming off a sabbatical, he actually came off a sabbatical. It was June of 2019. As soon as the New York Times article comes out, he came off a sabbatical to address this. So he spoke at the Southern Baptist Convention in Alabama again. You know, just saying. Mm-hmm. He interrupted his sabbatical. Uh, he s- disputed that the church had mishandled the case. And he stated that he had met with the family, which the family said, hey, it was not true. We, have, we haven't met with him. Here's what we know, you know, from that SBC report. There's always like misinformation or there's there's always like 
you know, we always are told, like, even in the SBC report, one of the things that, like, made me almost vomit was one guy saying after the there was an actual story of one of uh, the executors of former presidents that had uh, a story of abuse, the counselor that they brought in or the pastor pastor slash counselor brought in when he inter- was interviewed by Guidepost Solutions, he he said something like, oh, it was like a he said, she said kind of thing. Like the story was not mm-hmm. believable. Like the, the victim was not believable. But like if you read the Guidepost Solutions document, it is very evident that there was abuse in this situation mm-hmm. and that the investigators find that it credible. So I, in my brain, always when I hear things like, when you have victims saying, here's what happened, here's my truth. And then you have like an organization come out and say the exact opposite, like, like Mm -hmm. polar opposite. Like to me, there's red flags that have to go off there. All right. So, you know, they say, Hey, this is not true. The family said, since they came forward, so again, this was in 2019, they've lost close friendships. Jane Doe one has been bullied the day that Mr. Chandler disputed their experience at the convention was a day of trauma for us as a whole family. It's mm-hmm. just like, Jonna, as I read the Guidepost Solutions stuff and I read this, like th- the statements are, sim- are, are very similar. And the way that, again, there's just these layers of trying to find the truth, they're very similar. Mm-hmm. I just think like for all of us, like we just need to be discerning here and and just want the whole truth to come out. Like mm-hmm. I, that's all we should really want. Yeah. And at this point, like my heart breaks to know what this poor family has been through. I cannot even fathom it. Yeah. I admire their bravery because part of this makes me think like they're doing this because not only do they want justice for the vic- their their family, especially the victim, but they're raising a red flag for all of us saying hey, this cannot stand. This is not Mm -hmm. acceptable. To me, we need to listen. We need to listen and we need to start asking tough questions because the truth is more important than the institution. Yes, and a good shepherd wants the truth. They're not afraid of the truth. If we can say anything a million times over during this episode, the truth is not bad. Telling the truth is not bad. Yeah, I was going to say, in the, in the second article, it said the Southern Baptist Convention top leaders, so again, this was in 2019, who promised last month to fix the way churches address sexual abuse have not commented on this specific case. So this was in 2019. I do think it's important that this correlation is tied between the village and the SBC, because it is an SBC church. Mm-hmm especially this article tying it together where I think it does have some merit where you could look at the guidepost solutions report and say, this is probably an example of another story that is not documented in that report, but falls in line with the same way that those allegations were handled. So in a bizarre case, the alleged perpetrator was indicted, but he was not convicted. Correct, Jonna? Yeah, it didn't go to trial. The case got dropped. So there was a group of different people, including a prosecutor, a grand jury, detectives, forensic investigators, all came together to get this alleged perpetrator arrested because they found the victim credible. 
And in a weird turn of events, it was handed off to another prosecutor and that prosecutor did drop the criminal charges. So this case is currently in civil litigation. And I just want to echo what Jay was saying. We can speculate all day long on their motives for that, but I personally believe that this is extremely brave that they've continued to push forward for justice because you don't get a lot out of dragging your trauma through the world and especially not through Texas church going country. They are doing a huge service to all of us by continuing to push for accountability from the village. Yeah. And we will post these two articles. We also have the video where Chandler talked to the SBC. We'll post that so you can you can see his response. Um, we'll put put both of those out there. The court document is is in the second article, but we can link it as well if that's mm-hmm. helpful. And just uh, there was actually a third New York Times article that recently came out about SBC the report that dropped. And actually, Jane Doe's mom is in that report. She was interviewed for that as well. I'd love to read what she says to kind of end our time here. So she says, the report ignores active legal litigation our daughter is navigated navigating against one of the biggest churches in the SBC. It continues to make you see the place she stands is such a difficult place. There's a lack of accountability and there's a lack of acknowledgement. Lord... Heavy stuff. I I mean, I, I don't know how to close on this other than, again, I go back to, and, I, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but the truth is more important than the institution. Mm-hmm. I feel like that needs to be just shouted from the rooftops in every church. Mm-hmm. And if you go to the village, if you go to an SBC church, if you go to Acts 29, Methodist, um, E free evangelical, I wherever all of this should be concerning to us as a body of believers. We should be demanding not only accountability, but truth from our leaders. Mm-hmm. If they're not willing to give it, then we should stop going to those churches. Mm-hmm. It's really that simple. The church existed for a long time at houses and backyards, at dinner tables, coffee shops before we started building multi-million dollar churches with satellite campuses. And it did fine. Jesus mm-hmm. doesn't care about your building. It looks like garbage when this is the fruit. Yeah. Just because you had one maybe good shiny apple come off of a tree that's giving off just rotten garbage constantly, that doesn't make it a good, healthy tree. Tiberius Caesar, the emperor during the time of Jesus' execution, was seen as the son of God. So it is no surprise that all Romans would have believed what poet Virgil wrote in the Aeneid, Rome had sovereignty without end. This background informs how we read John 18, 33-38. It is a high drama on the world stage, and to me, it is one of the most provocative and thought-provoking dialogues in the entire Bible. After an abusive interrogation with religious leaders in Judea, Jesus was brought to Pilate. I believe that Pilate and the other Roman officials in Judea had heard the rumblings of Jesus, but Romans thought Jesus and his followers were a part of mischievous superstition. So I picture Pilate and the other Romans in the room distracted and annoyed when Jesus was brought in. Pilate starts the interaction with, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus met this sarcasm with a quick rebuke. Is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? I picture Pilate sitting back and collecting his thoughts as he realized this man had sharp wit. Pilate responds with, am I a Jew? Pilate, probably growing tired of this diatribe, now turns the conversation away from him and back towards the Jewish leadership. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Pilate is giving Jesus an out. Just admit what you did and we can be done with this ridiculous conversation. However, Jesus doesn't bite. Instead, he ups the ante. Jesus responds with, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. To understand the magnitude of Jesus' response, we have to go back to Virgil's quote, sovereignty without end. While Rome still had the facade of a republic, it was truly a monarchy. The emperor was in charge of everything, and not only was he divine, but so was his line. Rome was the sole world power. Jesus is asserting that not only does he have a kingdom, but his kingdom is one that Rome, the ruler of the known world, whose ruler was the son of a god, has no authority over it. Pilate responds with, You are a king! I personally hear the snarkiness in Pilate's voice. The room was probably filled with laughter at the absurdity of Jesus' claims. Then Jesus responds, probably amidst the jeering with, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this, I came into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Mike, drop. Jesus literally just rebuked the world's sole superpower. He elevated himself, and rightfully so, over Rome's authority and power in this present and eternal. Their emperor wasn't the ultimate truth. Jesus was. And all who believe in truth believe in him. I picture the room completely silent now. Everyone aghast and stunned as Jesus' words settle in. Then Pilate responds, and it is haunting. What is truth? Toward the end of the guidepost solutions, there is a chilling statement. It reads, Almost always the internal focus was on protecting the SBC from legal liability and not caring for survivors or creating any plan to prevent sexual abuse within SBC churches. Like the two New York Times articles, the Guidepost Solutions report contains voices of heroic survivors entering places and conversations with powerful men, asking, sometimes even begging for them to listen. But time after time, they were ignored, discarded, and even resented. When Jesus entered that room with Pilate, he was alone, beaten, humiliated, violated, and bleeding. Pilate and the other officials had the power, privilege, and authority. Jesus was insulted, ignored, and mocked by Pilate. Pilate was living in an empire that in part was built and maintained by violence, power, lies, and inequality. To me, it is interesting to speculate about what Pilate meant when he said, what is truth? Maybe he was being sarcastic because he thought Jesus was a lunatic, or maybe he was being introspective because Jesus' words spoke to the core of his own desire for ultimate truth that Jesus was offering. I personally believe his reply wasn't introspective or sarcastic. I think to Pilate that the truth wasn't even relevant. 
My question to all of us is if the church values its institutions, power, and place in culture over the worth and well-being of the people in our communities, then what is truth and who are we listening to? For Jay Coyle, I'm Jonna Harris, and to Jane Doe, her family, and all of the victims that have come forward and those who have not, we are rooting for you. We are grieving with you, and we are fighting for you. This has been the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast.